Mary Roach writes about scientific matters the way Tom Wolfe does about culture or the late Hunter S. Thompson did about politics and sociology. She informs while entertaining. While her topics lean toward the offbeat, they are solid in their foundations. Mary Roach's writings have appeared in Salon, National Geographic, New Scientist, Wired, and the New York Times Magazine, among others. Her previous books include the highly regarded bestsellers Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, and Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife. For her latest effort, Mary Roach turned her attentions to the study of sexual congress. The result is her latest bestseller, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex. Sexology, in past and especially present forms, is a subject matter of Bonk. Mary's book tour brought her to, here to UC Davis earlier this week, and we caught up to her that same day. Mary Roach, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you. You know, I chuckled when I first heard the title of your book. The word bonk was universally used when I was in South Africa on from the newspapers in lieu of sex, and that was a very innovative word choice, I want to say. Oh, thanks. Well, I do get a fair number of people who uh, call me up and say, or send an email and say, oh, you misspelled your book title. I believe it's boink. <laughs> so uh, I actually do hand out little peel-and-stick letter I's that people can stick on the cover if they feel it should be boink. Well, it shows a very international outlook, I want to say. The scientific study of sex had a rather indirect start. You chronicle in the book. You note that early studies looked at copulation in rats, skunks, raccoons, and my personal favorite, the tricky case of mating porcupines. Oh, yeah, I love that study. Well, in the early days, nobody nobody was brave enough to bring human beings into a, a science lab. It was just too freaky and too... It just seemed wrong. And nobody had, nobody, uh, had, the, uh, had the nerve to do that. And so in the meantime, they thought, well, let's see what we can learn from watching animals. Kinsey went on the road at a certain point with a movie camera filming barnyard animals at different agricultural schools. The thing is, it's it's over so quickly that uh, you can't really learn much, though it is entertaining, certainly in the case of the porcupine, <laughs> who uh, does all kinds of bizarre stuff that I probably shouldn't mention on the, the air, though you know how porcupines do it. This was news to me. You know, you assume they had to go belly to belly because of the spine, right. but the female will flip her tail up over the spine so that male can rest on her tail and thereby not get poked in the belly. I thought that was interesting. I, I think so, too. Um, you note that as recently as the 1960s, physiology text basically skipped over the topic of sex, and one can certainly uh, see why that was uh, you know, something people didn't want to get into when you mentioned the case of Vern Bullough, I guess. He landed on the FBI's list of dangerous Americans for subversive activities, evidently for publishing scholarly papers on prostitution and working to decriminalize oral sex. What shocks me, this is in the 1970s. It's kind of astounding. Even if someone's doing a work in the area of venereal disease, there was a, the, the very first person to publish a paper on venereal disease in a, in a, um, a gynecological publication was booed off the stage. I mean, that, that's not helping anybody. The problem is that anytime you do a paper or a research project in the area of sex, if you just if you just try to describe it to someone like, well, we've got some women coming in and they'll be observing pornography and we'll be <laughs> wiring them up to a machine. Well, it sounds completely funky. And you just, it, but then when you understand why it's being done and what the goal of the research is, and the fact that there's really no other way to do it, you begin to understand that it's just their job. Well, you, you, you mentioned Alfred Kinsey a, a second ago. He's a rather, rather famous name in the study of sex. I was quite uh, surprised to learn from your book that he was not merely this questionnaire type of researcher I thought he was. Uh, you mentioned the movie camera. Apparently, he really got into his work quite heavily. Yeah, people associate him with those 
kind of encyclopedic surveys of sexual behavior, you know, sitting down one-on-one and asking people about their sexual practices. And while that is his best-known work, he also got interested in the physiology. He didn't, because it was the 40s, uh, late 40s, he didn't really, uh, he didn't really feel he could have a laboratory uh, on campus and, and, and do physiological work in that setting. He did it up in his attic, uh, sort of in secret. <laughs> And, of course, that makes it look even worse. Got, What's going on up there? We're hearing all kinds of weird things. So, but, yeah, he was, uh, he was up there taking notes and filming, and uh, it was quite a rollicking time, apparently. Well, I think no mention of, of sexology could be complete without looking at some other, uh, the, well, the Hall of Famers, uh, Mast- William Masters and Virginia Johnson. They published their study of human sexuality in the 70s. Hailed as a great leap forward. Surely it was. But you point out in the book there's a problem with their work. They, they pre-selected women that were not average, which is kind of a significant design flaw. Well, here's the thing. They wanted to study human sexual response, arousal, the different phases of arousal and orgasm, and what happens in um, the human female and the human male. Uh, uh, and if that's your goal, uh, you need to find people who are going to be comfortable in a laboratory setting, which is not your average person. So uh, in order to, to, to do the work, they really didn't have much choice. And I think if you're only studying uh, the physiological side of it, you know, what happens in the body, um, it's, it, the same processes happen whether you uh, are somebody who feels very comfortable uh, having sex in front of someone or you're somebody who, who is more private. So I don't think it really uh, affected the nature of their, their data in that case. If, had they been looking more at an emotional or cultural uh, side of things, then yes, they certainly would have, uh, they did have a, a skewed subject population. Well, uh, Bonk uh, is full of uh, many provocative studies, and one that kind of caught my attention was a 2002 study at SUNY Albany by psychologists who noted that female college students who had sex without condoms were less depressed, which evidently suggested to the investigators that semen might have antidepressant <laughs> properties. Uh, it was a nice try. Nice try. I, uh, I sent an email to that guy, and I said, and how was your paper received when it was published? And he said, with great skepticism and scorn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can't I can't help but interject that this in in, in view of that that uh, there was a colleague of mine in med school who got great reactions by telling female classmates he suffered from DSB and they'd say DSB and he would then deadpan yes deadly sperm buildup. <laughs> <laughs> help me, please help me. You can save my life. <laughs> Well, you've got uh, a, a lot of a lot of great quotes in the book. Um, a really profound one I wanted to just cite. You asked a UCSF professor whether the female orgasm might not be useful to aid sperm transport into the uterus, and he said, "Quote: I think by now you know how science is. You think you know a lot until you start to ask some really basic questions, and you realize you know nothing. I know a lot about artificial insemination, but I have no idea about the answer to your very simple." question, which is, which is a really profound thing to say to a science writer. It, it was a, a moment of surprising honesty, um, and I appreciated him for, for saying that, because people assume, well, we all know how to have sex, so that means we know everything. Well, we don't. There's so much that we don't know. It's a pretty complicated act. It involves the autonomic nervous system, emotions, reproductive organs. It's, it's particularly with women also, there's a disconnect between the body and the mind in women that they're just there's a whole university of uh, a whole lab at UT Austin where they're trying to sort of tease apart all the the subtleties of female sexual desire and arousal and uh, 
the more you study it, sometimes it seems like the less you know. We'll talk about that, about that topic of the female organ- orgasm. Between the time your publicist contacted us and now speaking with you today, Mary, there's been headlines about this exact topic. Some scientists are saying they think they've shown that the female organ- orgasm indeed increases fertility, and you were on the cutting edge of that with some, among other things, looking at swine breeding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Denmark, they're, they're, they're convinced of it. There's animal, there's animal data to suggest that that is the case, that the contraction of orgasm in, the, in a woman will, uh, or a sow the contractions serve to suck up the semen and then delivers it quickly to the egg. Um, some people argue that the, the sperm need time to capacitate. They need, they're not really useful in the first few minutes, so there's some people that argue that doesn't even make sense. Um, here again, this is, you know, this is a reason why we need to study it. Um, is there something was in the news this week, did you say? Uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, researchers talking about this exact topic, saying they think that they were showing this. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, um, it's amazing to me that that would still be an open question this late in the game. Indeed. Well, one aspect of, of Blanc that, uh, that's quite admirable, that you and your husband took part in some of the research you were chronicling. I, I've always taken a certain satisfaction that in, in the 70s, as an undergrad, I was at the NIH. They were developing the 2D ultrasound, and my heart got echoed a lot as a consequence, and the lab knew that'd be invaluable imaging technology, but I, I don't really think anybody in, in Bethesda back then envisioned the sort of ultrasound studies that you talk about in the book, and I, I salute your volunteerism. Oh, yes, thank you, Weeby. Yeah, I, I feel uh, I've made a little piece of history. Ed and I were the first uh, couple to be scanned in four, 4D, you know, th- meaning three-dimensional plus moving over time, uh, 3D movie, essentially, uh, having sex. Obviously, just the relevant parts, not, not a full-body sort of scan. It's ultrasound, and that was uh, probably the most awkward uh, 15 minutes of my life. <laughs> Well, well done. Um, I, I also want to compliment, uh, compliment your book for your clear descriptions of, of ED. I've worked in an erectile dysfunction clinic, and, and, I, and I was shuddering to sort of review as I read the book that until a few years ago, quote, impotence, unquote, was really treated as a psychological and not a urological problem, which I guess is a case of insult to injury if there ever was one. It's true, yeah. It was not really not until... Uh Viagra and some of the, you know, when, when, there, when people found that there, was a, there were simple substances that could produce fairly robust erections, this is uh, something that can be treated physically. It's not um, necessarily something you need to get on the psychiatrist's couch. Uh, but on the other hand, there are cases where uh, all the equipment's working fine and there is a psychogenic component that sure. well, suggests somebody should perhaps spend a little time in therapy. But um, for the most part, yeah, it was, and, and, and but yeah, there was a, for, for hundreds of years, they believed that masturbation caused impotence. And you know, what a pickle to be in, you know? You can't even go to your doctor for help because they assume, you know, oh, okay, you know what causes this. <laughs> yeah, well, Mary, that was my next question. You said it to a doctor a century ago. He actually advised men to avoid touching their genitals at all times and even to allow urine to drip down their pants rather than risk giving the penis a shake after voiding. Very stern advice. Very stern advice. There was also around that same time, uh, men were being advised not to go see musicals, that this could be too arousing and that they would then, you know, uh, this would encourage masturbation or, you know, God forbid, a nocturnal emission. That was also, even if you didn't instigate it yourself, you were in trouble. They had all these devices they would, men would put on the penis before they went to sleep to keep them from having a nocturnal emission because they thought that was sapping you of your vital spirit and causing uh, impotence. Ah. Well, thank God for Carol Channing. That didn't persist over the years. <laughs> yes. 
We're speaking with author Mary Roach about her latest book, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex. Mary, I don't get the sense from your book that females were really quite so sternly lectured about, uh, about masturbation. And, and do you reckon from your studies that, well, why, why do you reckon that was, that women were flying below the radar? Because most men were assuming that women weren't having them. Orgasm wasn't really thought of as a part of a, of a woman's, but uh, in, the, in the era that we're talking about, it wasn't really under consideration. It was so, so much so that there was a, tr- a, a condition sort of a general vague condition called hysteria in women. And doctors would treat this by, essentially by uh, sexually stimulating women to orgasm, but they didn't really know, they didn't realize, this is the amazing thing to me, they didn't realize what they were doing to the women. They knew that the women seemed very relaxed afterwards, and they kept coming back for more treatments, but they didn't have in their head, oh, I'm causing an orgasm. They, they, because they just, uh, the whole idea of female orgasm, until Kinsey came along and had put the statistics out there uh, and really presented women as sexual beings with sexual desires and, and sexual feelings and multiple orgasm and all these things that came out in Kinsey's work, until then it wasn't always common knowledge among men that women even had them. It certainly shows there has been some progress of, of late in this area. There has been some progress, absolutely, yes. But then on the other hand, I think of like Bill Clinton dismissing his Surgeon General who noted that masturbation was something that, quote, perhaps should be taught, unquote, and that, and that caused a firestorm not so long ago. Yes, she was forced to resign, uh, Jocelyn Elder. This came up in a conversation. I was interviewing a sex researcher about, uh, it's a de- there's a device that, that helps women achieve orgasm. It's a, it's, such, it's a very expensive sex toy, really. And I said to her, well, why don't you just teach women to masturbate rather than spending this $400 on this device that is essentially doing the same thing. And, and she said, well, you can't really, you, you know, if I were to publish a study or try to do a study on the health benefits of masturbation, imagine what would happen. And she brought up Jocelyn Elder, and then she said this wonderful line. She goes, Mary, masturbation is a very touchy subject. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were you were very thorough in discussing uh, this area. You you went out to a factory at one point that did produce uh, produce vibrators. Can you talk a bit about that field trip? Yeah, there was this was this was related to you know the device I was just telling you about that was a, marketed as a medical device. And I thought, well, let's see what the people who make sex toys have to say. Let's see because some of them have a research and development department. So I went down to uh, a company called Topco in Chatsworth, California, and they. Their R&D department is really sort of a table in the back. It's not really what I was envisioning. However, these, they do have a quite uh, encyclopedic knowledge of uh, what feels good and what, is, what does it best. So it was, a, it was an entertaining, uh, entertaining trip, um, seeing the, the women. It was interesting. There's a lot, of the, uh, a lot of Latino women from the Valley there work in the factory. And they're, you know, they're, most of them are Catholic. And I said, well, how does that really, how does that work? What do they tell their parents that they do for a living, and he said, oh, I asked one of them that. She said, well, we just say we work in plastic. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you talk in the book about the difference between the sexes uh, on the matter of sex, something where research is still uh, unraveling that, and I'm sorry to say I couldn't find, I, in my research, I couldn't uh, put my finger back on a wonderful quote you had about the response of females, but you basically were comparing its consistency to that of the weather. As predictable as the weather, I think, is what I was saying, yes. Yeah. Great quote. Uh, and, and, of course, the book is filled with curious stats, as in the human male's average thrusting time in sex is 2 to 5 minutes or 100 to 500 thrusts. This is, this is really de- data that only research can reveal. Yeah, but, you know, I hate those, those 
figures in a way because that's only the period of time where the man is actually inside the woman. It just ignores all of the wonderful foreplay that might have gone on, whether it was an erotic massage or something oral or whatever. It's just sort of the final act, but it makes it sound like sex is so mechanical and short-lived, some of those statistics. Well, that certainly represents a male perspective on things, I'd have to say. Yes, absolutely. Well, Mary, you you found at one point that somewhere in Southern California, this one kind of surprised me, their local police sponsor a class in bondage safety since people kept getting hurt and... uh, I guess that's pretty commendable. Yeah, I was. Uh, I think it's, it's offered through one of those um, sex positive sex toy stores like Good Vibrations. Although it wasn't Good Vibrations, it was the local version. And yeah, apparently there were enough calls that the police were getting annoyed. They said, "Will you do something about this? Do a class. Tell people the basics. They are not to get hurt." So they, in fact, have offer a class, supported by the police department. Fair enough. Uh- uh, in all your research, you did quite a bit of it. What would you say was your most pleasant surprise in this area of sexology? I was surprised just about every every other page. I was learning <laughs> things like, I didn't know that women have nocturnal erections. It, you would think I would know this, but women have little tiny clitoral nocturnal erections, which is news to me. I didn't also didn't know that the only other part of the body that has erectile tissue is, in fact, the nose. When you have a cold, you have an erection in your nose. I love that. Because I mean, even then some people say, oh, it's the, what about nipples? They get erect, but that's a different mechanism. It's little muscles that contract. It's not erectile tissue. So there you go. Your nose is very, you know, they say, uh, you know, the penis and the nose, there's some link there. Well, wow. there is a link, not the one that you think, though. The, the light bulb went off over my head when I read that, and I realized, well, one of the major side effects, Viagra and Cialis, nasal congestion. Well, I guess now we know why. Mary, I'd like to close with the fact that, that um, a very enjoyable aspect of your book is the use of asides, which you have sprinkled throughout in footnotes. And, and for me, the showstopper in your book, in a book I would note that's you know, filled to the brim with curious characters, which is your description of a British researcher named Giles Brindley. He was at a yes. 1983 urologic convention, delivers a lecture on the drug papaverine, which induces erections if injected into the penis. The guy gives a slideshow of his own penis after various dosages, then reveals to the crowd that he's that he injected himself just five minutes earlier. Can you walk us through what he does next? Oh, I love this story because it just sums up the, the, the very unique challenges that researchers face. Because here's a guy, he's very excited about this. He's found a, you know, a, a substance that gives you an erection dependably, so he wants to share it with the other neurologist. So he's up there, and then... Not only does he show the slides and, and, and he lets them know that he's used it, he then sort of pulls his, he's wearing tr- a tracksuit, you know, like sweatpants, and pulls it tight so people can see that he has an erection. And then he thinks, well, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. So he, he then pulls down, and this is in front of not only the urologists, but their wives who are all dressed up going to a cocktail party afterwards. He pulls down this, his track pants, tracksuit, and like proceeds to <laughs> walk to the edge of the stage. And then he says to the audience, I'd like to give some of you the opportunity to confirm the degree of Tumescence. <laughs> so he walks down the steps of the stage toward the people in the audience and the women in the front row throw up their arms in the air and scream. And, because it's just, what, what, like, what are you doing? What are you thinking, Dr. Brindley? But on the other hand, he wants to share the results of his research. So that, to me, really sums up sexology right there. Indeed. And I, I, think, we, I think that's a story we'll have to stop with because I don't think it can be improved upon. <laughs> We've been speaking with Mary Roach. Her new book is Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex. Mary, thanks for speaking with us. 
So thanks for having me on. Break your bill. Mama found the love with your lips.